Once again, Carol and I, thank you for having us. Thank you for your hospitality. It's been a blessing to us to be a part of the conference these two years. And we look forward to the next time we'll be together. The book of James, chapter 4, beginning with verse 13. James 4, 13. How many of you are younger than 25? Can I see a show of hands? Oh, I'm so glad. Those of, the, those of you that uh, feel like your bodies are a little older but still feel quite young at heart. Uh, most of my uh, college career, I've been working with millennials. I'm now working with Generation Z. The sociologists are beginning to recognize that those of you 25 and under are probably not millennials, but a whole new generation. Millennials were out to change the world. They were willing to sacrifice. Uh, they were willing to uh, change who they were to adjust to achieve great things, not so much for themselves, but for others. But this latest generation has shifted back to selfishness and is seeking to exalt themselves in their careers. But as I was describing some of my current students, I was describing that too many of them are C students who want to negotiate their ways to A's, and that if you're 25 or younger, your generation will be saying, I have to excel in my work, in my career, but I don't want to sacrifice to do it. Now, isn't that an amazing thing? Now, we don't have to be conformed to our generations, but we're influenced by our generations. It used to be in my father's generation that you would choose a career, you'd stay in it in your whole life, you'd uh, get into a particular company, you'd spend your life with that company. For those of you 25 years or younger, the job you'll spend time in hasn't even yet been invented. You're going to have at least three different careers during your lifetime. And what I want to tell you from the book of James, written a couple thousand years ago, is that your life work, your career, your business doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And that you will be led by God to places that you did not expect, to do things that you did not expect, and that you should take your eyes off of the advancement in your career and ask God, what would you have me do? Listen to the businessman he describes in James 4.13. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Most of us plan our lives with an expected life span, thinking I've got at least 80 years now that medicine is improving. I may have 90 years, and we say, I'm going to plan my life out decade by decade. He says, you don't even know how long you'll live. 
instead of you saying what you're going to do, why don't you ask me? Most of you will go into what many of us may call secular work, which means it's about making something or doing something for someone else that helps them to live a normal life. When I went to Dallas uh, to work on a Ph.D., I was looking for part-time work because I was a full-time student. In my local assembly, I met a young man who was also in seminary, and he says, you need a job? I said, yeah, I do need a job. He says, I will recommend you to be hired where I work. I work for Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries are automotive replacement batteries so that when the OEM equipment that came with your car wears out, you can buy a state-of-the-art reliable battery that'll last longer than any other battery you can buy. The company is dominated by evangelical Christians. The CEO will straight out say to you, not one of us is excited about automobile replacement batteries, even though that's our business. So since we're in the business of supplying what other people need, but aren't even interested in the product that we market and sell, what are we going to do with our business? And so they said to themselves, in every way possible, let's turn this business into a work for the Lord. So it's not like they don't help design the best batteries. It's not like they aren't ethical in the way in which they distribute those batteries and sell those batteries. They're saying, in every possible way, let's use our company to influence people for Christ. So on the day I was hired, they gave me a Ryrie Study Bible. They also gave me an article of clothing that said Interstate Batteries on it. (laughs) On the wall, they list a hundred missionaries all over the world that Interstate Batteries as a corporation supports. They have recordings of various sermons on the wall so that you can pick up a sermon and listen to it. They have Bible studies in the morning. They have a chaplain that you meet on the very first day that you're hired who says, I'm here for you. How can I help you? The whole reason they hired me as a seminary student because they said these poor guys in seminary that spend all their time studying they just need enough money to get by we need quality workers let's hire as many seminary students as we can find they'll be great workers they need the money and they come to us and they say do you realize god's blessing our company because of you we're not even hardly even trying and god keeps blessing our company So many of the workers in the corporate headquarters where I was working were single women of middle age. And I actually asked the CEO, why so many people who look exactly the same? And he said, every single one of them had a husband who left her. We find women whose husbands left them and hire them to work for our company. They're our most loyal employees. Everything they did was to try to influence other people for Christ as a company. 
Into town came a marriage enrichment seminar. They said, it's in the nicest hotel downtown. We would like to have you take the weekend off and you and your wife go stay in that fancy hotel downtown at our cost. We'll buy your meals. We'll pay your way to the marriage enrichment seminar because if you're happily married, you'll be a better employer employee for us. This is a company who says, I know we sell automotive replacement batteries, but we could care less about those. We want to use whatever strength we have as a company to influence other people for Christ. Now listen to what James says. There's this businessman who makes travel plans and starts bragging and boasting about his business all apart from God. Completely has left God out of his business. Is not asking for God's leading or blessing is completely selfish in all the way he's promoting it and doesn't think about God. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Do it for the glory of God. Make all of your plans tentative because you don't even know how long you'll live. Seek the Lord's protection Seek the Lord's guidance, but say to yourself, verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. So even as you make personal plans, such as going to college, such as studying for a particular career, such as getting that very much needed internship and employment in the field, even part-time, so that when you graduate with your degree, you also have experience. Make all of those plans in the Lord's will for his glory. Say, I'm not in this because I like this work so much. I'm in this because I want to leverage what is I do for God's glory not myself. Verse 16. Do not boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And so if we succeed, if God blesses us, let's constantly say to ourselves, that wasn't me. That was God in his graciousness blessing me. And then in summary to almost everything he said so far in the entire epistle, because he's been blasting out at machine gun speed so many suggestions. He says, therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Every time I got selfish, every time I tried to serve myself, my life fell into ruin. Every time I said, I want to serve the Lord, I want to please the Lord. I want to do this for his glory. The Lord helped me and I was blessed beyond my wildest dream. Commit your way to the Lord. Submit yourself to the Lord. Ask the Lord's help and guidance and blessing on what you're seeking to do. If you know what to do and you don't do it for you, that is sin. Then he turns to the rich, both inside the church and out, and says, you may feel comfortable in your riches, but frankly, you are sorely tempted to use your riches to twist 
your world into your image. And you will find that you are going to be a warped person yourself with the wrong motives, the wrong desires, and the wrong effects. And so he says, almost in a scary manner, chapter 5, verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries, which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is the last days that you have stored up your pleasure. It's so easy in America with so much discretionary income to spend to arrogantly trust in ourselves. And he says, in every way that we trust in ourselves and our own abilities, even to care for ourselves with our own money that we've earned with our own hands, we're doomed to fall into decay. It'll only bring misery. And so he says, you might as well right now burst into tears and howl with grief because wealth will not make your life easier. It will make your life more difficult. Do not hoard to yourself possessions. It will only become more fuel to the fire on which you will burn. And then he turns to the injustice and the way in which you're treating your employees. Behold, pay the laborers who mowed your fields. Can you imagine that? You owe money to your laborers and you not paid them? And which has been withheld by you. Cries come out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. Do you realize how many businessmen leverage their money to harm their employees and their customers and not their selves? It shocked me. Even in the automobile replacement battery business. It costs them the same to make a battery that they sell for $80 and a battery they sell for $120. But in marketing, they know that some people will only pay $80, so we'll give you three-year-old, four-year-old technology. Some of you are willing to pay $120, so we'll give you the latest technology, but every single battery costs us the same to make. Hewlett-Packard when they started making computer printers, every single printer that came out was better than the previous one and cost less. Why can't we live that way in the way in which we treat other people? Why can't we say, I'll do better for you and it'll cost you even less? Verse 5, you've lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You've fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and put to death the righteous man. He doesn't resist you. And he's saying, I hear these cries and you will be judged. For both those who are about to be judged because of their misplacement of their trust, and for those who are the victims of those who have taken advantage of them, he says, the answer for you is patience. Verse 7, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The answer is we should live every moment of every day 
expecting the Lord to return right now. His return is imminent, not just merely impending, meaning it's sure to come. It's imminent, meaning there's nothing from preventing him from coming right now. We should live with such expectation that we're saying the most important thing in my life is to be ready for the Lord's return. He says, you'll notice farmers are patient. They wait for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early, that'd be the fall rains, and the late rains, that'd be the spring rains for the harvest. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Unless we have a sense of anticipation, much like a child on the night before Christmas with the thought of all the toys he's going to receive. If we don't live our lives with this expectation that Jesus Christ could return tonight, then we have misplaced our expectations. Again, he's afraid that we're fighting among ourselves. And he says in verse nine, stop grumbling and complaining. Don't complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. He hears you. He watches you. He's coming back quickly. Quit your complaining. Remember our problem of selfishness in the book of James? That's why we complain. We think ourselves more highly than we ought. And so we say, I'm not being treated correctly. My life's not easy. My life's not happy. He says, take your eyes off of yourself. Allow me to produce in you the Christ-like character of endurance. And so he gives several examples. Verse 10. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. I think it's funny he switched from patience to endurance. Quite a nice slide to what was actually being developed in Job. Read through the book of Job. He wasn't all that patience. The actual word patience means long and then temper. In other words, a long fuse towards your temper blowing up. Being patient is being willing to wait it out. What was happening in Job is God was testing him in a test that he didn't even know was taking place. He had no knowledge because he didn't listen to the narrator at the beginning of the book saying, this is Satan coming before God saying, he only loves you because of how nice you are to him. Remove that nicest and he will curse you. His wife even suggested, curse God and die. No, he was being tested to see if he would love God for nothing. If nothing seemed to be coming from God, would he still love him? And he clung to that hope and said, I know my Redeemer lives. And I know that in my flesh, I will see my God. There is hope when he seemed so hopeless. And there is trust and there is faithfulness. And God brought him to the end and glorified him and gave him more than he ever expected. We have seen the patience of Job that was learned through endurance. Verse 12, but above all, my brethren, do not swear 
He's not talking here about cursing. He's talking about an empty oath, a flippant, profane, blasphemous oath in which we do not live a life of truth, and so we cover it up with lies about how trustworthy we are. Our lives should be lived in such a way, in such a trustworthy manner, that everything we say is trusted by the person. I can remember an argument between my older brother and his wife. She turned to me and said, I'll ask Kenny because he wouldn't lie. And I told her the truth, and then she believed her husband. Isn't it interesting that if we live a life of truth, people will trust us? When I was in college, I had a job working in a supermarket overnight. Back then, supermarkets closed at night. We actually stocked shelves at three in the morning so that the store would be full and faced by the time you came in at nine in the morning because stores didn't open until nine in the morning. The grocery store manager had a wedding anniversary and asked me to open the store for him at 3.30 in the morning for the stocking crew. I was the youngest I was the newest employee, and I showed up, turned off the alarm, started opening the door, and the whole rest of the crew was furious. Why do you have the keys? And I said, I have no idea. Ask the manager. He came in at 9 that morning, and the oldest one among them, the most experienced among them, went to the manager and said, why did you give the keys to that guy? And he says, because I trust that guy, and I would never give you the keys to the store because I can't trust you. Well... There you go. We live our lives in a manner that our yes is yes and our no is no. And we can be the newest guy and he still trusts us. But above all, my brethren, don't swear either by heaven or earth or with any other oath. But let your yes be yes, your no, no, so that you do not fall under judgment. Then he turns to sensitivity to other people's needs. He says, is any among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He's to sing praises. But in each case, you'll notice that how we feel about the circumstances coming in our lives is not supposed to be so much about how I feel as how this is affecting my relationship with God. We keep thinking secularly. We keep thinking in a manner in which what's happening to us has nothing to do with what God is doing in our lives. Lie, lie, lie. Everything that happens in your life has everything to do with what God is doing in your life. Just start paying attention. Just start looking around at the people who want to talk to you, the people who want to sit next to you, the people that are interacting with you, and notice that God has placed them in your life for a purpose. So if you feel suffering, God wants you to feel the suffering because he wants you to be developed by it. Paul argued with God about that. He said, I've got this thorn in the flesh. I can't do my job. You need to help me in this. Take this away. Three times God kept saying, no, listen to this. My grace is sufficient for you. And finally, he came to the realization like, you know, I could have been proud if it weren't for this thorn in the flesh. Thank you. I now understand that you are being glorified because I'm so weak I can't do it without completely casting myself upon you to empower me. So if you suffer, say, thank you, Lord. Help me understand what you're seeking to develop. I need endurance. 
Are you cheerful? Praise God for the comfort and the blessing that's coming into your lives. Are you sick? Now, most of us just use the English translation. The word is much broader than just physical ailment. It means weakness. It doesn't mean, in fact, its primary translation is weakness. It's speaking of spiritual weakness, emotional weakness, physical weakness. It's not just my tummy hurts. It's a whole range of difficulties that you're having physically. What should you do? You should call for the leaders of the church. This is so early in the church, they didn't even have deacons yet. They certainly didn't have bishops. All they had were elders. And he says, call for the leaders of the church, the elders. Have them pray for you as well. Now, most of us are so independent, so tempted towards pride, that we'd say, I'm not going to call somebody else. I'm just going to be miserable and mourn. I'm just going to feel sorry for myself. I'm just going to eat some worms. I'm not going to call the elders. I'm not going to open myself up and tell them what's happening in my life. But he says quite clearly, no, call the elders of the church to come and pray with you. This is not extreme unction. This person is going to recover. Nor is it automatic healing. We're told in other places, all healing comes as part of the plan of God in your life. Think of Job, for example, and how long he suffered. They will pray over him. They'll anoint him. This is not ceremonial anointment. This is rubbing yourself with oil. It's a different term. Could it be medicinal? Could be. Could it be for refreshment and encouragement? Could be. Could it be showing honor? Could be. But what's happening is the body of Christ is coming together and supporting each other at a time of need, be it physical, emotional, spiritual. Verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. We must add to that in the will of the Lord. He doesn't heal every single person, but he's saying, trust the Lord, give this over to the Lord in the proper timing. If it's his will, he'll heal you. The Lord will raise him up. And then he runs in the problem that some of our illnesses, some of our struggles spiritually are actually due to sin. And so if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. And that's partly why you want wise leaders who are more mature than you, who may come along and counsel you about some of the decisions that you're making, some of the sins you're involved in, and help you Confess your sins before the Lord because it could be part of the reason why you are suffering. Then he says, what if the real problem is that you've been grumbling and complaining and hurting each other's feelings and having problems between each other? This is not a verse to be used by the cult so they can control you, no secret information about you, and so they can blackmail you if you ever try to leave the cult That's not what this verse is saying. Verse 16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. A spiritual healing of forgiving each other. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And this is our struggle in which we say, well, do I have to be walking with the Lord for him to hear my prayers? It helps if we're submissive to the Lord for him to bring us out of the trial and allow us to come out the other side. 
if we are still needing more trial for more development, it's quite possible that he may have more time for us to go through that difficulty. Prayer really does change things. If you study New Testament prayer, you'll realize far and away the majority of prayer is asking God for things. Much of the problem is we don't ask enough. He turns to Elijah as an example. He says, Elijah felt what we feel. He has the same frailties we have. He has a nature like ours. And look what I did through him. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it didn't. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced fruit. I can do amazing things through you if you will be my vessel. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, but we need a righteous man who prays to accomplish great things. My brethren, if any one of you strays from the truth, he's speaking here about revival, and turns him back, uh, the actual concept of this is a person who's wandered away and become lost and needs to be led back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death. This is the sins of a sinner who was lost and will cover a multitude of sins. In order to accomplish that, we have to do the thing that's been talked about this entire book. Stop being so selfish, self-centered, focused on yourself, your own feelings, all about me, all about what I want to accomplish, get my eyes off myself and start looking out for other people who have needs. Remember I was talking about the first time I counseled at age 17 for a whole summer and I had my eyes on the girls my age, the other counselors as opposed to the campers. An experienced counselor, a middle-aged woman who was volunteering herself for the summer, said to us, have you ever noticed as we're playing these games, there's a group of students, a group of campers who don't play and they stand off at the edge of the field and they hang their heads and they don't want anybody to talk to them because they don't feel like they belong. She says, we need to see these invisible people we need to go after these invisible people. We need to befriend these visible people. We need to in include these invisible people. We need to bring them into the functioning of the camp. She was wise. May we be looking, therefore, for the ones who are straying and wandering away. May we lead them back. We can save a soul from death. We can cover a multitude of sins. Oh, Father, we come before you and say, Reading the book of James has been a stretch for us. It is not comfortable. He speaks so forthrightly, almost offensively. And yet he's got our attention. And he's told us to live out what we have learned. If we know what to do now, and we don't do it, it's sin. James was so plain we know what to do. Now, Father, may we live out what we learned. And may we glorify you. Because all praise and all glory and all honor belongs to you.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.